Hi everyone, welcome back to the Unpolished MBA podcast. In this episode, Matt Conwell, a tech entrepreneur turned venture capitalist, talks about his career journey all the way from leaving his college to take a job for the government. And we even talk about his startup journey as well. He talks about how his first attempt wasn't successful, but then the second one was. And now he invests in other startup founders and shares his wisdom on Twitter. We had a little disagreement on Twitter about startup founding, and that's actually how we met. But we hashed it out on this episode toward the end. Let's jump in. So I'm going to jump right in with the first two questions I ask everybody. And the first one is, are you an entrepreneur or a corporate employee? I guess I'm an entrepreneur. I'm the CEO of a venture firm. I'm the managing partner of a venture firm. So yeah, entrepreneur. Yep. All right. So MBA or no MBA? No college degree. Whoa. I love this. I love this conversation now. Um, it's very, very interesting because I've had, you're the second guest. Yeah. You're the second guest that has had no college degree, but is still su- quite successful. Um, and the other guest who has no college degree, but is a college professor actually at Stanford and Columbia. And um, that person is Steve Blank. So Steve Blank does not have a college degree. And he is like one of the, you know, like gurus we consider in this whole lean startup world. So um, very interesting. It's a pleasure to have you on and, you know, share your story. So you said no college degree, but I know a little bit that you have a software background, right? So how did you learn that? Where did you pick up those skills? I don't have a college degree, but I did matriculate at a college. Um, and so I studied computer science at Morgan State University, HBCU here based in Baltimore, where I'm from. Um, and so I, uh, my sophomore year of school, I got an internship with the DOD and got a top secret clearance. And so my junior year of school, I dropped out because North Grumman offered me a bunch of money. That's kind of how I got my career started. Yeah, those secret clear. I was just mentioning to um, someone like a couple weeks ago, I used to have secret clearances and good grief. Not not too many people can get those clearances. And so those jobs um, <laughs> go un, unfilled many times because they'll want someone. And then when they start the process to get their clearances, they can't get them. So, yep. yeah, it's a big hurdle. hurdle. I, you know, young people keep your keep your credit clear <laughs> and keep your record clear because those kind of jobs do pay well. Well, that's impressive. Uh, Northrop Grumman is uh, one of the top employers in your area, right? So how did you jump from there into entrepreneurship at some point? So, you know, I'd I'd always been somebody who tinkered with the idea of having a business and being an entrepreneur. And I attribute a lot of that to my father. Um, When I was a kid, I used to want to be a rapper. And I'll never forget the day my father asked me, he's like, so do you know who signs that rapper's checks? And I was like, no. He was like, well, if you want to be a rapper, you need to go figure that out. And what he was trying to teach me was the person who signs the rapper's checks is the person who makes the real money. And so like, I've always been one who wanted to do that. And then when I got my internship with the government, um, I got lucky that all the folks who were part of the internship were either computer science majors or electrical engineering majors. And there was a group of like 30 of us, 30 black people who were in the group and they became my core group of friends in my early twenties, right? Like these really well-educated, super smart, young black people um, were the same people I would go party in DC with, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And one of them is a gentleman by the name of Patrick Jackson. 
And Patrick was the first person I knew who, who would always talk about how he wanted to be the black Mark Zuckerberg. Like he was building iPhone apps in like 2007, right? He's building websites and like all this stuff. And you know, we're all engineers, so we can do the same thing he can. And so a core group of us kind of came together and started like talking about technology and coming up with business ideas. And so then in 2010, me and two of my best friends just said, you know, let's start a company. Uh, we had no clue what we were doing. Like we didn't know anything. We were just like, hey, we're going to build something. And that kind of started me down the path of, you know, starting my first startup and later becoming the CEO of it and going down the whole, you know, startup life thing. So what problem were you solving with that business? We weren't solving a problem. We were just doing something we thought was cool, which is one of the problems we had. And what it was, was our original idea, it's a company, it was called NoBadGift.com, terrible name. And what we were doing was we were trying to create a platform where people could crowdfund money for gifts. And really what we were trying to solve for is like, gifting is hard. You never know what to get people. But like on your birthday, all your friends would say happy birthday to you on Facebook, right? Like that was, that was, this always been a thing. And we said, what would it be like if everybody said happy birthday to you on your birthday, gave you a dollar towards something you actually liked? And we're like, well, that, that, that sounds cool. And so we started to build that. <laughs> it was a crowdfunding platform for people to, you know, crowdfund money for gifts that you wanted. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up, you know, running that for a year and a half. It had no customers because we didn't know what we were doing. Mm-hmm. We then started going through the process of networking or learning what networking was in like 2012. And that led us to getting into an accelerator here in Maryland, um, Accelerate Baltimore. And then we followed that up and we went to San Francisco and went to the New Me Accelerator, which was the first accelerator for underrepresented founders. And that was like our introduction to Silicon Valley. And that was very eye-opening. Mm-hmm. We learned a lot, we built the network. And then we also realized like a bunch of VCs had already made bets in that space. It was really crowded. And we needed to figure out how to differentiate ourselves. And so we ended up um, creating a technology to allow people to gift their friends anything from the iTunes store. But the way we would do it is the, the, your friend would get a text message or an email with a link that when they clicked it, it would just download. And at the time, nobody had ever seen an interaction like that. And so we pivoted the company to just doing that. And then we started selling that to um, businesses that did loyalties and rewards and stuff like that. Again, we went from being like a B2C company selling directly to consumers to a B2B company selling directly to businesses, not knowing what we were doing, trying to figure it out as we go. Yeah, <laughs> like everybody does, right? Everybody does. Like everybody mm-hmm. does. And so um, that's how we ended up running that company for four and a half years and eventually sold the IP off to a, a division of one of our, um, our, our clients who was a Fortune 100 company. And so that was like, that was my first foray in startup. Uh, it's interesting because I always share with people um, like the diff- the different types of exits when you exit a company because people be like, what do you mean exit? Because some people are like, oh, you know, I can I can run this company forever and, you know, I, my kids can take it on. And, you know, in, in our world, we call that a lifestyle business. Like somebody wants an exit so they there could be a liquidation event. Um, so my right. question is, was it a we talk about three exits, a new car exit, a new house exit, or a new life exit. It was a new car exit. That's, that's one of the things that I talk with uh, founders about too, because, you know, there's experience you can get as a startup founder that you, you are not going to get doing anything else. Like you just aren't, and you can't get that in college. You can't get that anywhere. 
But just understand that not everybody gets a new, a new life exit. Actually, very, very few people. Yep. Yeah, your journey is definitely going to inspire many folks that are that are listening. So shout out to you for sharing all of that. One thing that you mentioned, and I'm so glad you did, was luck. You was like, well, I got lucky, you know, when you were talking earlier about some of the early starts in your career. Do you believe, and I'm just telling you, I'm biased, I believe, do you believe luck plays a part in startup success? Plays a huge part. Yep. Luck and timing. Luck and timing are gigantic. And I'll give an example, right? So mm-hmm. at the state of Maryland, we invested in this company called Clear Mask. It's a company making clear surgical masks, right? For a year, you know, a year or so, they had been trying to get off the ground and, and they were having a hard time because at the time, the idea of a clear surgical mask was actually more of a luxury than a need. But one of the founders of the company was a, is a woman who's deaf. And the company was born out of her experience of getting surgery and not being able to read her doctor's lips because they had masks on. And she started freaking out and they just put her under. Oh my so she goodness. Freaking out to waking up and surgery being done. Wow. And that preceded them to want to build this. And so, but because it was a it was a it was a clear mask, as a plastic mask, mm-hmm. um, it caused more expensive, it was more expensive than your traditional surgical mask. Yeah. And so, you know, um, they have been struggling. And we decided, like, hey, this is something that needs to exist. There's value here, let's back it. That's January, February timeframe of 2020. Oh my goodness. And you didn't even know about the pandemic yet. No, like something's happening, but we don't know what's really happening. Come March, they're in the middle of getting FDA clearance and they kind of got accelerated because they got multiple million dollar orders from all over the globe. (laughs) Because everybody's just looking for surgical masks at the point. And so like, that was all timing and luck. So like, you know, that's, that's how this stuff works. It is, but you gotta be in order for, to, to, to catch that wave, you have to be in it, right? Some people are, are like on the sidelines, like just waiting, you know? Um, but by the time you find out about it, somebody else has already kind of captured the opportunity because they already been working on it for five years. Um, so I'm, I'm incredibly excited for that company and, and, um, having deaf friends as well. I bring that topic up and it makes, uh, actually it makes some people kind of be like, Oh, never thought about that. Um, you know, about why we transcribe our episodes. And I'm like, well, some people want to read it cause it's quicker, but, yeah. um, having been a person that were part of my university was, uh, NTID national technical Institute for the deaf. I have deaf friends. And so that's just kind of second nature for me to consider that population of people. Um, And so I'm doing a podcast. I know that they can't hear it, but they can read it. Um, And, you know, and so that's just something that I automatically do because I have diversified my life experiences and the people I associate with. So I say all that to say, let's talk about diversity. Okay. All right. I know you have some things to say, but it's it's important. I, I just took it back to just even just the deaf population and considering them um, in things. And that right there alone has, you know, gotten you a win in the startup space of, of investing. How important do you think diversity is? I think diversity is critically important, but I want people to understand what it is when we talk about diversity. Mm-hmm. Very often, people use the word diversity to talk about their own affinity group. Diversity does not mean black and brown. Diversity does not mean women. 
Diversity is not mean disabled. Diversity is not mean LGBTQ. Diversity is not mean native. Diversity is not mean immigrants. Diversity means everybody. So when you start talking about diversity, please be talking about everybody. If you're not talking about everybody, then be clear about who you are talking about. And that's okay. Don't try to use this word diversity as a catch-all when really you're just talking about black and brown people or you're just talking about women. Because diversity is really important and all those other issues are important too. But let's not overlap them all. Yes, that's a very, very good point. Because one of the terms thrown around a lot, especially we're going to get to you being in a venture capital world now, um, the phrase used a lot is diverse founders. And when they say that, they really mean black and brown, right? Uh, and really, so a lot yep. of times, most people mean really just black. They, they you know, they don't even think uh, Latinx community or, uh, you know, others. They, it's just, they, that's the term they use for black founders. Um, so being very clear about who you mean when you throw out diversity, uh, that's, that's such a poignant point that I don't want anybody to miss. Okay. So now let's talk about how, um, this plays a part in what you're doing with your venture capital firm now. Well, I'll take a step back and I'll, and I'll walk, and I'll walk forward just so everybody understands the process. Right. So after my two companies, I worked at a marketing firm for a year before I found my way to the investment arm of the state of Maryland, the Maryland Technology Development Corporation. While I was there, I started doing seed investments, but when I was there, they were struggling to invest in Black-led startups. And one of the things they were looking to solve for is this idea of Black-led companies saying they lacked access to friends and family capital. I took that knowledge and started a pre-seed fund for them where we, the, the pilot year was just for Black-led startups. And then we eventually opened it up to women and all minority groups. And so I ran that for two and a half years before I went to go start my own fund, right? So that is the lens of which I have from the investing world, investing really early and investing for diversity. But when I started my own fund, we do not have a diversity mandate within Rare Breed because diversity means everybody. Right. All right. Okay. Now, is my portfolio going to probably over index on women and black and brown people? Probably, but a lot of that has more to do with my network and where I go to look for founders. Again, it's the same thing with, you know, non-black found with white founders is the same, right? So they have access to family, friends and all of that because that's their network. Exactly. And so like, even when I was working at the state of Maryland, they were like, this is amazing. We did this for black people, you know, now let's just make sure we can do this for Latin people too. And I was like, that's awesome. I'm probably not the best person to do that. Like I can do that. But when I started the fund and did the pilot year, it was really easy for me to reach out to black founders in the state of Maryland because I was one. I knew where they were. I knew where they hung out. Like I knew what events they went to. I knew what, you know, um, meetups they did. When you have a diverse team, you're going to lean on your network to an extent to find companies from, from an investment standpoint. And so this is why it's really important to have a diverse team. And diverse team does not just mean gender and ethnicity. It also means age as well. Absolutely. So yeah, diversity is important. So um, right now, you know, you mentioned a few things about the family that I call FFNF, right? Uh, friends, family, and fools, that round. Um, and it's really across all ethnicities, um, you know, Caucasian, black, white, whatever. It really comes down to your, your socioeconomic status. Um, 
if you have access to uh, a network of people who have money to invest in your business or who can't, who has the, not even just have the money, but the risk tolerance, right? So is that something that your venture firm can bring some balance to? Are you willing to invest in those founders that are, that don't have access to that, that early round, but let's say instead have customer traction? I hope so. I mean, that's the goal, right? To invest in those founders. And not every found, not every founder we invest in is going to fit that profile. But I hope that there's enough of them that we do invest in that will lead to more investments in their communities going forward. The way this world works is every time a company does well and has an exit, it creates several new millionaires. Mm-hmm. It's not just the CEOs, but it's also like their first call it 50 to 150 employees are all going to become millionaires. That's how this works. And if the entrepreneurs we invest in hire people that are from their communities or look like them, then that's going to create a new group of millionaires that will hopefully become angel investors and um, VCs and mentors and advisors and communities that have, that don't have that now. That's the hope. So, you know, right now for your firm, what is your, what's, what's your thesis? And what kind of companies are an ideal for your portfolio? So our thesis is we invest primarily outside the major tech hubs, outside of Silicon Valley, New York, and Massachusetts. We um, Mm -hmm. invest at pre-seed and seed. So our sweet spot is companies um, who are raising with a a valuation of less than 10 million. We'll go higher for the right companies, but valuations of 10 million and less is kind of our sweet spot. And we're industry agnostic. We don't do life sciences, but we'll do just about anything else. But we care about two things. One, if you're a software company, we like to see a clearly repeatable or unique customer acquisition strategy. You don't have to have a lot of customers, but you need to know how you get your customers. And we like physical products, typically in consumer markets that have lacked innovation for 10 or more years. And really what you're going after can, can support a billion dollar industry. That's all I need. If you're if you're catering to those three pillars, then we can probably figure out a way to get comfortable making the investment. And that's the thought process I use so that I'm never the investor that misses out on the next specs. Like just because I don't understand the industry doesn't mean it's not a good industry to invest in. Yeah. You're very good at explaining things to people on Twitter because a lot of, you know, a lot of the venture capital world is kind of like, nope, not a fit. You know, and that's the end of the conversation. And so you tend to take time to explain to people why, you know, they're best fit for certain things or not fit for certain things. So when it comes down to founders that you invest in, is there, what is your average check size? And also what, what, what kind of traction, if any, do you expect them to have before you'll invest? So our target check size is 250. Our average to date is probably closer to like, 150, but that just has to do with dynamics of us still in the process of raising our fund. Um, the traction thing is difficult because, you know, in, in limited cases, we will do pre-product or pre-revenue, uh, but usually we, we want to see traction. And there's two things to do with that. One is when founders are pitching investors, they're not just pitching against the other competitors in their space. They're also pitching against all the other founders I'm going to see over a certain time period. So in the given quarter, I myself can see, you know, on average 500 companies, sometimes more, sometimes less. If I incorporate my team all together, we'll see somewhere between 700 to 800 companies every quarter. Of that, we'll invest in like zero to four. 
And so when you still come to me and he's like, yo, Mac, I got traction. I'm doing this. I'm like, that's awesome. But I got this other company over here that has similar traction in a larger market or has more traction in a larger market. Well, now, even though you have traction that's worthy of you getting funded, if I'm just looking at the different you know, companies I'm currently looking at at the moment, you may not be the best um, investment opportunity. That's number one. Right. Number two is, mm-hmm. yeah, number two is, and we see this with underrepresented founders very often, especially with black founders, where they'll get upset, where they're like, look, I don't have any money to get started, you know, but I've done a little bit and I have some traction. This white guy from Stanford just got five million to do the same thing, but I've already done more than him. Why can't I get funding now too? Mm-hmm. The problem with that argument is you're not comparing apples to apples. Because what you don't know is the backstory to why that white guy from Stanford got funded. And typically nine times out of 10, it has nothing to do with his business. It has everything to do with his network. So if you don't have the network, all you have is your business, everything being equal, his business isn't worthy of getting funded either. He just had a network of people that had enough disposable income that they were willing to just give him money. Exactly. They have have high risk tolerance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, then then you're, you're playing a different game. So you cannot compare yourself to that. Yeah, right? yeah, you're so, right. You're right, Mac. I think is. you need to have that conversation more often. You got to keep saying that over and over again. Because I, I don't think every, don't get me wrong. I think that there are disparities in funding, definitely because of, of biases. But I don't think every decision or every light decision not to invest is based on race. I, I don't. I don't think they're saying, oh, that's a black person. I'm not investing in them. Like, I don't think that is, always the case and you know I don't know how often it is but I think we we need to have more conversations about how it actually how venture capital actually works like what you do on Twitter I mean a hundred percent you know tell founders like you know you know something like I had a founder who met with me and I when he got done talking I told him he was too early and I explained to him you know from a VC standpoint why he was too early and he stopped he's like yo Mac I've talked to like 50 people Mm-hmm. you're the first person to explain to me what being too early meant. I just thought exactly. everybody was racist. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, no, they're not racist. Your company's just not ready for it. Right. But, that. but that can be a hard conversation sometimes. And, and a lot of VCs don't want to be honest because they're afraid they're going to piss somebody off. Mm-hmm. My whole thing is like, when you talk to me, I need to tell you this information because if I don't, you're going to start creating your own thoughts about the industry that a lot of times can be really wrong. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't help you grow. Yeah. Like, if you don't know what being too early means, then what are you going to do going forward? You're just going to think, oh, everybody's racist. Nobody wants to back me. This is why VC didn't work for us. It's like, no, do more to build your, your company. Yes. I really, really hope the audience listens to this. That That's going to be an audiogram, by the way. Um, it's very, very important to get that point across. Mac, I, before we before we wrap up here, there is you and I have a difference of opinion on 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 something. And if you remember, we kind of had a little back and forth, just a little bit, just a little bit on Twitter about Uh-oh. having um, 50-50 split with co-founders. Yes. And Brad said, oh, I don't believe in that. But you was like, no, that's the way you should do it. So <laughs> tell me your reasons why you think that's the way it should be done. One, all these conversations around equity and everything should happen very early on. You should. Have the hard conversations with your co-founder up front. Two, having everybody give equal equity just kills a bunch of time and noise and arguments and things that permeate into the company far into the future. Three, 
equity, I view equity similar to accountability. And I got this from Michael Seibel from y, uh, uh-huh. CEO Y Combinator. He told me this. And it's true. When I got 20% equity and you got 80% equity, but you breathing down my neck because you want me to work harder, I'm going to look at you and tell you do more work with your 80. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing with my 20. <laughs> the that mindset. Happens. Oh, my gosh. But, the mindset. But then here's the other thing that I think founders don't get. Because founders will do this where they're like, yo, I've been building this company for a year. I just brought on a CTO. I'm not giving them equal equity. Well, here's the thing with that. If you don't have any customers, you ain't raised money, you ain't got no revenue, you don't have a business yet, you have a hobby. Hello. Number one. Number two, the most important person in your company fluctuates over time. Because mm-hmm. when you first get started, your CTO or whoever's building the product is the most important person in the world because you ain't got nothing until they done building. The moment they stop building the, and your product's out there, the most important person in the world now is the CEO because now you got to go out there and get customers and then go get funding. Once you get funding, the next thing, the, the most important person in the world goes your CTO again, because now they got to build whatever you told the VCs you were going to build for your next thing going forward. Then as time goes on, you raise even more money. The most important person in your, in, in your company becomes whoever's going to do the hiring, because now you got to go from 10 people to, to 60 people in the next seven months. There's these ebbs and flows. So like who's more important and who's done the most changes over time. Mm-hmm. And those changes can lead to resentment. And so yeah. when you just have equal equity, it just helps split all that stuff out. Now, if you want to negotiate equity and somebody's willing to take less, hey, every company and every founder story is different, right? Mm-hmm. I can't tell you one way is better or right compared to the other. I just have my bias when it comes to that. I feel like your um, um, thoughts on that does work. I mean, it makes sense. It should work that way in a perfect scenario. But from my experience, I see more imperfection than perfection. Um, when it comes to just dealing with people, right? Because we're all imperfect. And um, when it came down to, and this is what I had put in the tweet to you, I'm like, when it came down to decision-making, when everything was 50-50 or, you know, 33-33-33, you don't have anyone to kind of cast that final vote. And it can call, it, it has led to one of the founders being like, you know what, I'm out of here. I, and they, they leave, they don't want to, you know, they want it to go their way. And they feel as if it should, you know, I own just as much of the company as you. I've only seen it come into issue when it came down to decision-making because everyone felt like they had equal rights to things to go the way that they thought it should go, even when it, it, it varied amongst, you know, the team. So well, that's, that's the, that's, the problem with that is they ain't got nothing to do with equity. It, that has it everything does. to do with team construction. Cause here's the thing. It does just when because it comes to their argument. But see, that's the thing, right? Yeah. They made the mistake of assuming that equity has anything to do with decision-making. That's why I'm not And when founders say, hey, we got co-CEOs. I hate that. Like, no, at the end of the day, one person needs to make the final decision. Who is that? And you and your team need to have a hard discussion about that. Because that's true whether you have equal equity or not. Yeah. And so don't use equity as a proxy for throwing your weight around and making decisions. Because those are the conversations that you need to have in the early days. Like, hey, when we can't agree on something... Who makes the final set? Because the whole, you know, figuring out by committee and all that doesn't work. It does not work. And separate that from equity. That's all. (laughs) Yeah, it should be a separate conversation. But again, you are on Twitter um, and and just in your daily life, including like right now on this podcast, telling people how it should work. 
And I think a lot of people are in the startup world who have no idea how it really works. And so um, a lot of things can seem unfair and, you know, and that's not really what's happening, right? It's like, well, this is the way the business works and they're learning as they go along. So they get a lot of bumps and bruises, you know, along the way. I know several companies that I can say more than not that by the time the company is in year five, there's a lawsuit with one of the founders against the company just because yeah. of things like this. And so, you know, it's, it's tough. I think everybody needs to like start listening to you a little bit more because you, uh, you explain things in a way that, you know, able to be consumed and understood. Well, um, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you get your props on Twitter, which is awesome. So if folks aren't following you right now on Twitter. How can they find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Conwell, M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L. Uh, I'm pretty active. I'm always tweeting. So hopefully you can, you can get some more information from me and, and follow me uh, through this journey. Thanks for sharing um, your story and some drops of wisdom um, with our audience. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's it. So what did you think? Mac was so transparent with us in this episode, and he even talked about his startup exit, which I think is really important. Understanding the concept in the simple terms of a new car, new house, or new life exit has been helpful in the work that I do with other startup founders. Being an entrepreneur is tough, and not everyone is going to be the next Facebook, but you can certainly still be successful. I really like how Mac broke down what he looks for in companies and made it very clear how he sees diversity. He said it includes not just all ethnicities, but also all ages. And we don't talk enough about ageism in the startup world, but it indeed exists just like in corporate America. And I'm glad that he brought it up. Perhaps that's something I'll address in a future episode. You know, all of these isms. I sure hope these types of discussions we're having are getting us closer to where we want to be as humans. I hope that you learned something from this episode that will inspire you or even clarified something for you about the startup life or venture capital. Mac is very active on Twitter, educating founders, and he'll even tweet you back if you ask any questions. So feel free to give him a follow. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com.